We are here at the end of John 18, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 38 of John 18 to verse 16 of John 19. Now, biblical historical narrative provides for us the revelation of God and the verification of the prophetic word. You're going to realize this morning that the very verses that are before us are a fulfillment of Scripture, are a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, written and spoken hundreds of years prior to the Lord Jesus Christ standing in front of Pilate. When in reality, friends, it was Pilate standing before Jesus. You know, it's surprising to me how many people, pastors included, by the way, who say that preaching or teaching biblical narrative doesn't interest them. Because, you know, they feel that they need some immediate application from the Word of God. Okay, I need to go to a church that has, is going to provide for me a message that gives me three steps to a better marriage or three steps to a better relationship with my employer, three steps to a more successful life. We live in a society where people just want, you know, give me, give me, give me little sound bites so that I know what I have to do. Rather than as God's people coming to hear the word of God prepared in their minds, prepared in their hearts to engage in biblical truth. And I trust that you're all here ready to engage. Amen? That is no manipulative tactic on my part. It's just a reminder. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's look together then at this glorious historical narrative. And we will begin right here in John 18 with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, under the authority of Caesar back in Rome. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. 
Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he handed them, he handed him over to them to be crucified. Our glorious Father, Uh, We come before you now in thanks. With hearts, I pray, that are set to worship you. I pray for your church this morning, Lord, those that are here who are sinners uh, bought by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that they will see and be reminded the glories of the cross to walk in utter humility because of the atonement, because we're blood-bought sinners. And Lord, I know there are most certainly people here who claim with their mouth that you are Lord. They believe in the facts, but they, like Pilate, stand neutral. They love the world. They love their sin. They know you're the truth, and they don't want to go to hell, but they're lost, and they don't know it. I pray for them today that you'll invade their heart, kick open the door, and cause them to be born again by grace for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're witnessing here is the passion of Christ. The road to Calvary for which he is in absolute control. Jesus said to Pilate, everyone, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said, verse 38, what is truth? As I said last week, postmodernism isn't so postmodern, is it? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and he said, I find no guilt in him. Now, if you've ever made Pilate out to be some kind of hero because he was a believer in Christ, you are wrong. 
In this narrative, we observe the response of Pilate who recognizes the innocence of Jesus and he tried four ways of avoiding a clear decision to release him. All of which, by the way, is nothing less than cowardly attempts at neutrality. Title of the message this morning is a cowardly attempt of neutrality with Jesus. There's no middle ground for anyone. Choose this day whom you shall serve. You are either for me or against me. Pilate goes on to make four calculated maneuvers in an attempt to avoid making a decision either for or against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Pilate's the prototypical coward of all cowards. He recognizes the innocence of Christ. He recognizes, whether he realizes it or not, the holiness of Christ, but he refuses to bow before Christ. He refuses to submit to Christ as who he is. And my friends, he is Lord of glory. He's God incarnate. When Jesus Christ speaks, God speaks. He did everything in his power to avoid making a distinct, clear decision. He had no courage to stand on his conviction. Zero. Truth was staring him in the face. The embodiment of all truth, the true truth. Truth, my friends, is not relative. Truth is found in Christ alone. And I'm talking about the Christ of the Bible. Not the Jesus of man's finite imaginations today. Well, I say he's like this. Who are we to say what he meant by what he said? Well, the authority of the scripture says so. Come on, somebody. Amen? Amen. By the way, if you're a visitor, like I told the last group of brothers and sisters that were here, I'm not a madman. I might look mad. I might look angry. I'm passionate for the truth. That's why I seem, well, he seems so angry. I'm not angry. I will admit I am angry of those who profess to be Christians and live like Pilate. I believe that's righteous indignation because my heart goes out for those people because they're so deceived. So when my my brow is furrowed, this dent is a scar and it makes me look mad, but I'm not mad. Amen? We got that out? Good. Pilate. He is a prime example of utter selfishness and cowardice. And Pilate is a prime example of how selfishness and cowardice lead men and women to betray their own souls. Now, the word of God reveals for us that it is the cowardly who actually lead the pack into the lake of fire. In the final judgment, the second death, Revelation chapter 21, verse six, I am said Jesus, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Pilate, my friends, was a vacillating personality. 
he hadn't the courage to resist or fight against the tide. He was spineless. He was a man who recognized the innocence of Jesus Christ and said over and again, I find no fault. And Pilate knew, according to the scripture in Matthew 27, 18, he knew that the priests handed Jesus over because of envy. Envy. Religious hypocrisy. He knew it. Pilate ought to have either released Jesus or taken him into protective custody from the human side of this whole event because he was innocent. But he tried everything to stand in the middle. You don't stand in the middle with Jesus. Nobody does. Now, how would Pilate's history have been changed had he done what he knew to be right? I mean, why when Pilate concluded numerous times that Jesus, Jesus was innocent, did Jesus end up being crucified? Why? Well, there's only one logical, biblical, and theological answer to that question, and it's this. The sovereign plan of sovereign God was being worked out so that many would be saved. That's why. Okay, that's why, ultimately. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the sovereign side of Christ's betrayal, his arrest, his trial, and his condemnation. None of it was outside of the absolute sovereign control of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This was a preordained plan, and it would be played out with perfection. John 10, 17, Jesus said, I lay my life down that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. In Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul the Apostle says that the Son of God who loved me gave himself for me. In Romans 8.32, God is described as he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. Now, many other passages as well speak of the divine side of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's also a passage in which the divine and the human side of this event are brought together. Remember when Peter preached in in Acts chapter 2 during Pentecost. He said, this man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, sovereign side, you... Nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. Human side. Now, notice with Peter's preaching, there's no attempt whatsoever for Peter to try to resolve this paradox. See, you get into trouble when you try to resolve the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. You try to mesh them together, you're going to end up a madman or a mad woman. This morning, my friends, our focus will be on the human responsibility of Pilate as he stands before Jesus. Now, God's sovereign plan, he has an overarching plan for this universe. It will be played out precisely. However, 
God's sovereign prerogative never cancels out human responsibility. The practical issue at hand this morning is this. Have you, this is very personal, have you surrendered to Christ? How have you responded to Christ? Or perhaps how will you respond to Christ? See, Pilate realizes the consequence of either concrete decision. If he does what is right, releasing the king of kings, he will lose his job, he will lose his influence, and he will lose his head. If, however, he does what is wrong, he will save and he will secure his power, his prestige, his influence, and he will save his head, but he will ultimately lose his soul. Now, we're never going to be able to understand some of the things Pilate says and some of the things that Pilate does here in this historical narrative unless we know some history regarding Pilate. Okay? Now, we're able to glean some of this history from Josephus and Philo, two historians from the first century. First of all, Pilate governed Judea from 26 A.D., until 35 AD. In 1961, there was discovered a stone plaque on the coast of the Mediterranean that designated Pilate as the procurator of Judea. If you were in Israel with us back in November, you saw a replica of that large plaque. It looks like a headstone right there on the Mediterranean in that great palace and region that Herod the Great built. And Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean was Pilate's headquarters when he reigned over Judea. Now, Philo describes him as of an unbending and recklessly hard character, and then he goes on to give a very bad account of his official administration. Some recorded charges against Pilate are as follows. Corruptibility, (laughs) violence, robberies, ill treatment of the people, grievances, and continuous executions without any form of trial. Along with endless, intolerable cruelties. We read in the account of Luke chapter 13 about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. We have no further account than that. But someone raised the question to Jesus that day, and they said, what about Pilate, who's, you know, these Galileans coming to worship, and he kills them along with their sacrifices. What about him? He said, what about him? He goes, as a matter of fact, I'll ask you another question. What about the Tower of Siloam? A construction accident that fell and killed a number of people. What about him? You think they were worse sinners than anyone else? You think these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans? Most assuredly, I say no, but you better repent or you also will likewise perish. Bottom line, you're going to die somehow, some way. Whether it's under the hand of a tyrant or whether it's under a construction accident, a car accident, you're going to die. The question is, have you repented before the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question. Because you will die. Spoke with a man this morning who told me that his father, when he was nine years old, he got word that his 38 year old father 
died of a heart attack. 38. When it's over, it's over. Tomorrow's promise to who? No man. Now, even so, there are three famous incidents that mark the career of Pilate. First off, Pontius Pilate had much less respect for the Jews and their beliefs than did previous governors. Now, typically, when a Roman governor would ride into his region of control, he came with a great parade. They would have been surrounded by soldiers, mounted and dressed horses, and they would have been carrying flags raised high with the image of the emperor. Now, when it came to the Jews, great care had been taken by past Roman governors that the troops entering Jerusalem should not carry these flags with the figure of the emperor upon them. I mean, the Romans were not really oppressive unless the people were revolutionary. And then they'd crush you. I mean, they wanted to keep it peaceful and they were very good at keeping peace. As a matter of fact, the emperor would wear on his little crown, peacemaker. Peacemaker, which meant this. If you in this region start strife or have strife with this region, and it seems as though you're going to war from one another, I will come and I will make peace. How do you make peace? You take heads off. He's peacemaker. But you see, to the Jews, the, the, the flags raised high with the image of the emperor upon them was, was very offensive. Obviously, the Jews would see this as a graven image. So, to keep from creating an uproar of the, uproar of the people, when these governors would enter the city of Jerusalem, they'd take the flags down, they'd wrap them up, and they'd put them away. Pilate, on the other hand, <laughs> he thought that this kind of tolerance was weak, and it was completely unworthy of these Jews. So, on his first visit to his newly assigned post of Judea, he comes in from Caesarea by night, and he has this great parade with him, all of these horses, all of these dressed horses, all of his soldiers, and flags raised with the image of the emperor. So not only did the Jews who saw this freak out, they start spreading the news to the other people, and then they follow Pilate back to Caesarea, which is 65 miles north of Jerusalem, and they protest for five days and five nights. And then on day six, Pilate admits the Jewish crowd into the race course that Herod the Great built. And right there on the Mediterranean, there's this uh, large track-like thing, and they used to have chariot races out there. So he allows these people out there. They give their beef. He surrounds the Jewish people with his soldiers with drawn swords, threatened to kill the Jews. The Jews don't resist. They actually literally stick out their necks. They said, go ahead and kill us. It'd be better for us to die like this than to see the image of the emperor raised up in Jerusalem, the holy city. Pilate relented. He removes this practice from his, or this, these images from his practice when he would come into Judea. 
So that was incident number one. Incident number two, Pilate decided to build an aqueduct that would bring water into the city of Jerusalem specifically for the temple. Because they would have all these blood sacrifices, hundreds and thousands of lambs a year slain. It made a mess, and a lot of this water would be used to cleanse this area, more so than it already was. So, in order to fund this construction project, he steals from the temple the Corban offerings. If you think the flags were an offense, this was even more so in the minds of these Jews caused a great outburst of anger. Now, hearing about the outburst, he, Pilate knew he would have to hear from the people. So he says to his soldiers, I want you to go undercover. I want you to don civilian clothing, and within that clothing, I want you to have a club. No swords, just clubs. When the people come out and they start becoming all heated, I'm going to give the signal, and he gave the signal, and they beat many of the Jews mercilessly unto death. Now Pilate become, became liable to the emperor, peacemaker. Third incident. Now, although Pilate did learn from the incident in Caesarea that the raising of Caesar's image could not be carried out without stubborn resistance of the Jews, he goes ahead and he has these shields made. Bronze shield. Now, shields, rather than the image of the emperor being impressed upon them, he impresses the name of Caesar on them, and he hangs them up in Jerusalem, where he was headquartered, where he would come in. Um, as I said, he's headquartered in Caesarea, but during all the high feast of the year, he would come in just in case there's an uprising. So there he had these images, known as votive shields. And a votive is something offered in fulfillment of a vow. Or it's to exhibit gratitude or devotion to a sovereign, to a monarch. So these shields were then devoted to the honor, the memory, and the worship of the emperor. Now emperors, according to the Romans, were viewed as gods. The Jews would not have this. They would not put up with this. And once again, the Jews become outraged. And even Pilate's supporters of the day advised him, don't do this. He does it anyhow. And then the four sons of Herod actually addressed a petition to Emperor Tiberius and they report Pilate. And history tells us that Tiberius, who plainly, by the way, perceived that this was an act of purely wanton bravado on the part of Pilate. In other words, he, was, he did this more to annoy the Jews than he did to honor Tiberius. Caesar orders him to remove the shields from Jerusalem and have them placed in the temple of Augustus back at Caesarea. Now, Pilate at this point had increased, had, had experienced an increased loss of failure and popularity, as you can imagine. So needless to say, Pilate made a series of political, political mistakes in his very short career. Now he was on a short leash and he was skating on very thin ice with Caesar. And the Jews were well aware of this. So the Jews now hold the puppet strings over Pilate's head. We can better understand then why Pilate, why he's impaled upon the horns of a dilemma with the Jews. 
He had to choose between two kings, Caesar or the king of kings. All of you must decide between two kings. The king of kings, Jesus Christ, or the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians says, if you're not in Christ, you are subject to the prince of the power of the air, who's Satan. There's no in between. Question before our study. Is there a competing allegiance in your life this morning? Is there a competing allegiance in your life this morning? Are you subject to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings? Or are you torn between the love of sin and loyalty to a false God? And being surrendered to Christ. To whom do you bow? To what do you bow? What draws on your affections? Is it Jesus Christ? Or is it, and then just fill in the blank of what's ever coming to your mind right now, if you're not bowed down to Christ. And to help us, let's see what we can learn from the cowardice of this man, Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate, who's under great political pressure, seeks to find a loophole now in order to please both sides. Is that not what we do in our sin nature? We want to please both sides, amen? But until the Holy Spirit comes and invades your life and enables you to see the holiness of God first, because when you see the holiness of God, you see the magnitude of your utter depravity that you are a sinner to the core, as Scripture says. And in response, those who the Holy Spirit are working in to cause to be born again, they fall in absolute humble submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. You must be born again. What can man do to cause himself to be born again, beloved? Absolutely nothing. Literally in the Greek, it means to be born from above. That is the sovereign control and and, and, and work of God alone. When he does that, we get to see the response of that. It's a repentant life, surrendered and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, those four calculated maneuvers that I mentioned, in in an attempt to avoid making a decision, either for or against Jesus, are outlined for you in your bulletin. Number one, we will see a cowardly political custom. Number two, a cowardly physical torture. And Pilate's third attempt at neutrality is a cowardly verbal threat followed by a cowardly public appeal. Okay, let's look first off at a cowardly political custom, verse 39. But, this is Pilate now, but you Jews have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas, he was a robber. So Pilate attempts to bargain now with the Jews. He knows Jesus is innocent and he resorts to a custom given to the Jews every Passover by the governor. And that was to release one of their prisoners in order to please the Jews. He makes an offer. Jesus He wants Jesus off his hands. He knows he's innocent, but he's not willing to make a stand and say, I release him, I don't care what you say. 
they call for Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a rebel leader against detested Rome. The Jews hated the Romans. And the word robber in the Greek here means bandit or brigand. So in his rebellion, Barabbas stole money to support his cause. And along the way, in the process, he murders someone. Here he is locked up. And this is the man whose freedom the Jews cried for. You see, the Jews knew that Pilate would likely do this. This was no surprise. Trust me. So they assemble the mob. This was customary. So they assemble a mob. You know, many well-meaning preachers preach that, you know, the crowd that was here one week before this event said, Hosanna. And seven days later, they're crying out, crucify him. But in reality, beloved, we're talking about two different groups here. Earlier in the week, that group that cried out, Hosanna, was made up of mostly Galileans who came down for Passover. This mob was stirred up and brought in by the Jews. Mark tells us in chapter 15, verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Now, by divine providence, Pilate is forced into a verdict regarding Jesus Christ. The crowd cries for Barabbas, and the Jews are likely thinking at this point, okay, if Barabbas gets out of hand again, and he brings trouble upon us by the Romans, him we can stop. (laughs) Because if he starts up trouble again, we'll just turn him over and have him crucified. Him we can stop. Jesus, there ain't no stopping. You can't stop this man. He has no weapons. He has no hidden agenda. He has no insurrection plots whatsoever. All he does is teach and preach and heal some people along the way, validating his profession of being the son of God. They were filled with conviction. They knew he was holy, and they knew they were sinners. Although they polished the outside of their cup with the ecclesiastical garb that they rode around in. Religious hypocrisy. Jesus turned the world upside down, beloved. Guess with what? The sword of what? Truth. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword to divide a father from a son and a mother from a daughter. Families will be separated because of truth. In one Christian ministry, a man stood up and he said, we need to stay focused on the Bible. And we shall not resort to secular ideas and subjects and and methods of ministry which are nothing less than corporate. We must stand on the word of God. And when he stood up and he said that, guess what the response was? Let me tell you what. It wasn't, oh, brother, you're right. We're convicted. We got to get back to the Bible. No, the response was, resign or be fired. They ended up getting rid of that man because he was stirring things up with the truth. The truth. Anytime, anytime a person is drawn to things sinful 
Anytime a person is drawn to things that are less than biblical when they're trying to quote-unquote do ministry, anytime a person who professes to be a Christian is drawn to the sin of the world and all that they provide, there's something drastically wrong with their quote-unquote spiritual life. Drastically wrong. What would this pagan Pilate do next? What then shall I do with this Jesus who's called the Christ, the other Gospels declare for us? And that, my friends, that is an eternal question that goes out to all people. What will you do with this man who's called Christ? Rather than releasing Jesus, Pilate now resorts to his second cowardly attempt at neutrality. Here we have a cowardly physical torture, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no fault in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Eke homo. Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Think of their gnashing teeth. Think of that. Crucify him. Just like they gnashed their teeth at Stephen, whom they stoned. They gnashed their teeth at him. Those in hell, Jesus said, forever will be gnashing their teeth at Christ. At Christ. Because he's a coward, his goal now, don't miss this. His goal is to now gain the sympathy of the mob for Jesus, right? I mean, perhaps the mob, he's thinking, perhaps the mob would be appeased if they saw some blood. So he sends Jesus to be scourged. Now, this scourging was different from the scourging that Jesus received preceding his crucifixion. So there's two scourgings at all that the Lamb of God would suffer. Two. 700 years before this very moment, he, scripture says, the prophet Isaiah, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. By his scourgings or by his stripes, we're healed. Brothers and sisters, that has nothing to do with physical healing. You will hear these whack jobs on TV called preachers saying, by his stripes you are healed. Get up out of that wheelchair. This has everything to do with spiritual healing. The sin nature that sends us to hell that we're all born with. That separates us from a holy God. God demands justice. It pleased the Father, Isaiah said, to crush the Son. Who was in ultimate control and who preordained the Son to be crushed? The Trinity. 
And the father was pleased to crush his son so that sinners like you and the chief of sinners like me can be atoned for those stripes, those scourgings. So here they are, the soldiers. Well, since he claims to be a king, let's make him one. So they take a long branch from a date palm and they wind it up. And I have one of these. Have you ever seen those thorns are three, four, five inches long? I used to wind one up. As a matter of fact, I have it in my attic. And I used to hang it on my door every Easter time until people would come in and bang their head on it and they would not be pleased. <laughs> so I said, ah, for safety's sake, I better put it away. They place it on his head and beat him on the head. You see, friends, it was sin that brought thorns and thistles into this world. God cursed the world when man sinned, and what came up? Thorns and thistles. So, therefore, it was only fitting that the creator of the universe would wear a crown of thorns as he bore the sins of who? Many. Are you one of the many? Many are called, Jesus said, but only few are what? Chosen. They throw a purple robe on him. It's likely one of the soldiers' robes. They throw it over him. And then they stand in line. It says they, they kept hailing him king, which means they came before him. They bowed a knee and said, Hail, king of the Jews, slapped him in the face, went to the back of the line and did it again and again and again. And Matthew tells us that they also Bat in his face. They make a makeshift scepter. They place it in his hand. Purple robe, crown of thorns. They take the scepter out of his hand and they beat him on the head with it, driving those thorns into his skull. They mockingly said, verse 3, Hail, King of the Jews. And my friends, when they said, Hail, King of the Jews, they spoke better than they ever knew than they ever knew. Beware if you say Jesus Christ is Lord and you refuse to serve him as Lord. Beware. Now imagine their thoughts, these soldiers, when they died physically and they stepped into outer darkness. They were judged for their sin unless any of them repented, which I have no idea. But imagine their thinking. Imagine on the last day of final judgment when they will face Jesus Christ again, the King of Kings, before they enter the lake of fire, facing the one whom they mocked. Now, as wicked as these barbaric acts of the soldiers were, I believe it is much, much worse to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and to rebel against him to sit under sound teaching of the word of God and live for this world, to sit under the word of God and to entertain sinful passions in rebellion against him. God have mercy on your soul and anyone you know who lives like that. Friends, if you have kids and that's the way they live and you're banking on the fact that they accept, said some prayer to accept Jesus in their heart and there's nothing that validates someone who's been born again, you are foolish to say, don't worry, Junior, you said the prayer you're in. You better cause them to confront their soul condition if you love them. 
Again, Pilate says in verse 4, I find no fault in him. Now, surely at this point, Pilate's thinking that the sight of this scourged and humiliated prisoner would arouse some pity in this mob. Behold the man, he says. Now, when he says behold the man, eke homo, this carries the idea that he says this. I mean, look at this helpless fellow. Him a king? Take pity on him and let me let him go. But, just like a great white shark, which I learned from Shark Week, can smell blood over a mile away, they go in for the kill. They go in to attack. Crucify. Crucify, they say. Crucify him. Now, the failure of Pilate's plan here, beloved, teaches us a very, very important lesson. And it's this. It takes far more than human sentiment and feeling sorry for Jesus to bring a lost sinner to salvation. Amen? Come on. There are some theologians today who believe in a view of the atonement that is called the moral influence theory. And it states that the realization of our Lord's sufferings actually move the heart of sinners so that he turns from sin and he begins to love Jesus. You remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ? I knew this guy who said, there's going to be such a great move when people see this movie, they're going to be crushed and you people need to stand up in the movie theaters and ask people to invite Jesus into their heart because so many people are going to be saved. How ridiculous that is. I would go into this gym that I work out at and I don't work out all that often. But when I would go into it, there was a man, I called him Smiley because he was Mr. Happy who worked behind the bench. And I used to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must repent of your sin. You must follow Christ. If you repent of your sin and you follow Christ, that's fruit that you are born again. So that was right around the time that the passion came out. He sees me, and Mr. Smiley turned to tears, and he got all clouded up and welled up with tears. And he goes, friend, come here. I went to see the passion 11 times, or some high number like that. And I took family members every time. And man, they all cried. And I still cry just when I talk about it. Have you repented? of your sin and surrendered your very life to Jesus Christ. No. No. That is purely subjective and that, my friends, has no bearing on the holiness of God and the importance of satisfying divine justice and that's where that movie fell short. Because that movie portrayed Jesus as being some helpless victim. He came to die and he was in control. Who do you call for? Jesus or Barabbas? Who do you call for? Jesus or the idol that has a hold on you? Who do you call for? Jesus or sex? Outside of marriage, of course. Who do you call for? Jesus or money? Jesus or the party life? Jesus or worldliness, Jesus, or success. 
If, Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. How often, beloved? Daily. And follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he will what? Save it. You can't save yourself. The point is, when you bow before Christ in understanding your sin condition and that he's holy and he's righteous and that he paid the price for only those who believe, you bow in submission and your life is transformed. Transformed. This is a critical moment for Pilate. His soul is in the balance. (laughs) It's a critical moment for any man who's confronted with Jesus Christ. Every man and woman must decide what they will do with this Jesus who's called the Christ. There is no neutral position. (laughs) Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him. Now, Pilate uses sarcasm here. Since the Jews had no authority whatsoever to impose the death penalty, let alone by way of crucifixion. So there's a bit of mockery there. And then verse 7, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law... He ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. And what they're doing there is citing Leviticus 24, verse 6. The charge of blasphemy? Death. He declared to be God. He declared to be the son of God. And if you declare equality, or son of, you declare to be the son of God, you declare equality with God. If you declare equality with God, you declare to be deity. They wanted him dead because they missed the point. He was the fulfillment of all the scriptures and that which they promised about their Messiah, the coming one. Now this statement, beloved, stirs up anxiety within Pilate. And this leads to his third cowardly attempt of neutrality with Jesus, a cowardly verbal threat, verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, if he was more afraid, we know that he was already afraid. Amen? And then in the midst of all of this, all of this that's going on, we also read from Matthew that one of his soldiers brings him a note. Matthew chapter 27, verse 17. While he was sitting on the Bema, the judgment seat, His wife sent to him, she sent to him, saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now, Pilate, being the pagan that he is, could care less about Judaism and the Jews. He's not thinking, this is the promised incarnate son of God who came to bear the sins of the world, just as Isaiah prophesied. He's not saying that. You see, Romans and Greeks had numerous, numerous myths about the gods coming down to earth as men. So as a pagan, he must have responded to this phrase, son of God, with these stories in mind. Now he's just paranoid. Then verse 9, 
he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Oh, the words of the prophet Isaiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth, prophesied 700 years earlier. See the importance of historical narratives, brothers and sisters? You don't need three points and a poem to get you on your way, amen? Pilate knew that the Jews had no tolerance whatsoever for other gods, and he, as you know, had already been in deep trouble in the past with the whole, the votives and the flags and all that. So these Jewish leaders are saying, in essence, remember our law about other gods and how it almost cost you your position, Pilate. You see the strings now being pulled? They own him. This is blackmail. They own him. Pilate is in, Pilate's in panic mode. And he's thinking, Caesar is not going to tolerate this again. What on earth do I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? <laughs> Paranoia will destroy you. Amen? Paranoid. He's gripped by fear. He fears the Jews. He fears this Jesus who said, my kingdom did not originate here. My kingdom, spiritual kingdom. And everyone who's of the truth, they hear my voice. He fears the Jews, fears Jesus. He fears losing his position. He cannot get out of his mind what Jesus had said, let alone this note that came from his wife. He, as they say, is Ripping. So, verse 10, Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Jesus' silence here, beloved, is an act of judgment. Judgment. Imagine the impact of the silence. Imagine facing Jesus two feet away. Where are you from? Nothing. So many people walk through this life, they play games with God, they believe the facts about Jesus Christ, yet they deny him by their very life. They're raised in the truth, perhaps, or they say, I'm in search for the truth. But in reality, they're not in search for the true truth, because if they were in search for the true truth, they would bow to the truth, Jesus Christ. They would bow. But for many, the truth of Christ makes it no further than their head. And the judgment of God and the fear is that God will just stop. And as Romans 1 says, he turns the sinner over to themselves. And the convicting work of the Holy Spirit stops. I believe that America is under Romans 1 judgment. When God turns the sinners over to themselves and that which is evil they say is good and that which is good they say is evil. Marriage between a man and a woman, who says? 
The same man who has stated three times, I find no fault in him, tells Jesus that he holds the power to have him crucified? You must be kidding. So now Pilate attempts to pull out his trump card of finite human authority. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? So what he's saying is, I've been given delegated authority from the most powerful man on the planet, from the most powerful empire on the, pa- on the planet. You don't speak to me? I'll kill you. Jesus hardly moved by that statement. He's God. Answers. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above for this reason. He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate is not the primary player here. Pilate's not even the secondary cause here. Jesus said you are only in this position because of the sovereign providential plan of my father. That's it. You have no authority. Caesar's authority, as a matter of fact, is only an authority which is given by my father as well. And beloved, Obama is in office because of the sovereign plan of God. Kim Jong of Korea is in position because of the sovereign providential plan of God. Fret not my fretlings. Amen? He's in control. We are called as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ to pray for all men. To pray for men in positions of power. To pray that God will break them. That God will bring them to saving faith. We need not fear what's going to go on in this world. The only thing we need to fear is, are you of the faith? And when you are in the faith, friends, his spirit bears witness with your spirit that we are children of God. Regardless of the trial, regardless of the temptation, regardless of the affliction, regardless of the persecution for the name of Jesus Christ. But even so, Pilate, even so, you're guilty for your own sin, buddy. Even though the ones who delivered me to you, their sin is greater. Who was responsible for Jesus' death? Well, the responsibility, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, is widespread. From Judas to the soldier who finally pierced his side and water and blood came out, all had differing motives, but it was all birthed from equally sinful hearts. And think about it. Judas was motivated by what? Greed, the scripture says. He was motivated by greed, humanly speaking. The priests were motivated by envy. The Jewish crowds by hysteria. The soldiers by callous duty. And Pilate by fear. Now, if you think about all those motives, isn't it interesting that every single one of us can recognize the mixture of those sins in our own wretched hearts until Christ showed up to save us? Amen? Greed to do what I want when I want. Envy to be like my American idol and forsake Christ. Hysteria, go along with the crowd. 
fear. Duty. (laughs) Now, what does this statement of Jesus signify? He who delivered me has the greater sin. Well, greater is a word of comparison. Their sin is greater, but you, Pilate, you're still culpable for your own sin. Why is it greater sin? Here's the answer. To whom much is given, much is what? Required. The Jewish priests that handed Jesus over to Pilate were given the very oracles of God, as Romans says. They knew the scriptures. They knew the doctrine. They knew the theology. And when the fulfillment of such showed up, they wanted him dead. They wanted him dead. People who know the gospel can reiterate the gospel clearly and reject Christ. They will suffer greater condemnation. Are there levels of punishment in hell? Yes, according to Jesus. Greater will your condemnation be, he said to the Pharisees and the scribes. You bunch of whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You focus on washing the outside of the cup, but inside is filth. Hypocrites. Woe to you, he said. Pilate gets the point. There's two options for him. That's it. There's two options for everyone. Verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. You see, the threat of the Jews here is a threat that could cause Pilate his very head. Release this man, you're no friend. Now, friend of Caesar was an official title bestowed to select persons, such as senators, you know, governors like Pilate, who were marked by loyalty to the emperor. A friend of Caesar. And if Pilate is not a friend of Caesar, what else can he be? Only an enemy. He'll be viewed as an enemy. So, I ask this question, who is on trial here, beloved? It's not Jesus. Pilate is on trial. Every human being is on trial. There's two options for Pilate. Number one, save your position, save your influence and your life and lose your soul. Number two, love you, lose your position, lose your influence in life and save your soul. Because it all has to do with idolatrous worship. It's idolatry. Remember our study a couple weeks ago when we went into Luke 17 and Jesus said, remember what? Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. So the Jews have this troubled politician in the palm of their hand. Submitting to Jesus Christ would cost him everything. So the Jews are saying, what's it going to be? Pilate, what's it going to be? Is it going to be friendship with Jesus or friendship with Caesar. You see, when it came to evil, beloved, these Jewish religious leaders were brilliant. That's what religion does. They roamed around in their ecclesiastical garb and their heart was full of deceit. So Pilate, now he's grasping for straws and then finally he makes his fourth attempt at neutrality, a cowardly public appeal. 
Verse 13. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. You see, for Pilate, in the human side of this situation, the fate of Jesus has returned to politics. From the human side. Notice, John said it was about the sixth hour. About. And this would be according to Roman time, which would mean this was about 6 a.m., so he went from he went from Annas to Caiaphas, and they tried Jesus about three, four, five in the morning. Then they bring him to Pilate. Mark tells us that Jesus was crucified about the third hour. He would have been referring to Jewish time. The first hour of the day was six a.m. Jesus would have been crucified about nine a.m. So Pilate now presents the bleeding, disheveled Lord, the Lord of Glory, to the crowd, and he hates these Jews. So now he rubs it in. And he says, behold, behold your king. You weak Jews, here's your weak king. You want, here's your king. And then the Jews respond with the most shocking words imaginable, beloved. Shocking. We have no king but Caesar. It was as if they said, as if they said, we have no king but the Emperor Pilate. How about you? You see the manipulation here? This is a statement of ultimate blasphemy, friends. Final apostasy of these Jews. It's over. Verse 16. So we close up. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Humanly speaking, it was envy and religious jealousy that won the day for the Jews. Did you get that? It was envy and religious jealousy that won the day for the Jews in their mind on this day. For Pilate, it was cowardice that left him standing in the doom of neutrality as he hands Jesus over according to the cries of the crowd. So for the time being, they all, in their own minds, they won the battle, you see. But in eternal terms, they lost the war. They wanted to get rid of Jesus? Okay, done. But it was according to the sovereign plan of God. In the end, they lose the war. They lose their soul. They all served another king than the king of kings and the Lord of glory. They served the devil. And anyone who's outside of Christ, according to Ephesians 2, they serve the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. That's what we've been delivered from, beloved. Delivered. So how about you this morning? As we close, what king do you serve? For whose friendship will you die? Pilate sacrificed truth for what he thought was security. The religious Jews sacrificed salvation, rejecting their very promised Messiah in order to quiet their guilty consciences. 
truth. Because Jesus laid bare their conscience time and time again. He ripped open their ribcage, spiritually speaking, and the stench of depravity came out, you see. They wanted him dead. Their pride wanted him silenced. And people's love for sin and people's love for this world want to silent Jesus from their minds. They will not be comfortable in a church like this if that's what they want. So they seek out, as the scripture says, preachers who will tickle their ears because they do not want the truth. That's why there's so many megachurches today. They tickle men's ears. Who wouldn't want to listen to a guy who's sipping on a cup of Starbucks up here? Hey, you guys. Do I have a plan for you? Boy, you want a good sex life at home with your wife? Boy, do I have a study for you. And then they just absolutely shred Song of Solomon out of its context. Hideous. For who or what is the God to which everything in your life submits? Whose kingdom are you submitted to, beloved? Is it Christ? Or is it your desire to be free to live in this world system? Do you live for the glory of Christ or you do, live, do you live for an idol? Do you live for the glory of Christ or you, do you live for your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Do you live for Christ or do you live for popularity with friends, family, co-workers? Is it Christ or business? Is it Christ in your bank account? Is it Christ in fornication, sex? Is it Christ... And success. Is Christ your addiction? Or to many men these days, is virtual reality fantasy games your addiction? Christ demands from every man and woman a verdict. Neutrality is not an option. It's not an option, friends. To be undecided for Jesus Christ is to be decided against Christ. No decision is a decision. Well, I'll put, the, I'll put this off making a decision. I know the truth. I'll put it off until later in life. Possibility? Silence. Silence. It takes the grace of God to invade your life. It takes the grace of God to reveal your condition. It takes the grace of God that enables you to submit to him. How many sermons have you heard this? Jesus is standing, tapping on the door of your heart. And there's only a doorknob on the inside. And you have to open it. And if you open it, you play your part and then Jesus comes in and then you can glory in your salvation and say, I opened a door and I let Jesus in. So Jesus saved me by grace, but I had to exercise something. So now I can stand above the next guy. No, Jesus said, unless you were born again, which means born from above, you cannot even begin to understand the kingdom. And then when you preach the truth, God moves through the Holy Spirit. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And I pray that if you're here this morning and you're like Pilate standing on the fence trying to balance because you don't want to go to hell, that the Holy Spirit will crash in that door and cause you to be born again so that when I bid you to come to Christ and repent of your sin by grace, you'll be able to do so and you will bow before the Lord of glory.
be saved and cloaked in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ and come to realize and understand that he went to the cross for you. Bought at a great, great price. If it's you, repent. Come to Christ. You can't bank on some prayer to invite Jesus into your heart that you said some time ago. It's about now. Come to Christ right where you sit. You're faced with the truth. Don't walk away like Pilate in cowardly fashion. Now, to the church, to those that are saved, and I hope by this point everyone here is saved by the grace of God. I hope that he's caused you to be regenerated, born again, and you can trust that although we focused on the human aspect and the cowardly side of Pontius Pilate, you mustn't forget that Jesus was not some helpless victim in the process of his trial, his betrayal, his arrest, and his death. He was in absolute sovereign control of his passion, which was the road to what? Calvary. We're studying the passion of Christ, and I close with this. Really close now. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge the righteous one, my servant, says the Father, will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. The Father's wrath had to be propitiated. The Father's wrath, in other words, had to be satisfied. And Jesus is our propitiation. God is holy and God is love, but he's also a God of wrath. His wrath had to be satisfied, and the only way for it was to be satisfied was to crush his holy, one and only begotten son. Do you serve him? Are you covered by his blood? Meditate on these things today, beloved. And you too shall be saved. Surrender. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, I'm overwhelmed by the clarity of Scripture. Stand in awe of the promise of your prophetic truth fulfilled in your Son, Jesus Christ. The one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Choose this day whom you will serve. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. God, I pray for those who are here this morning who've been playing games 
who know this truth intellectually, that you'll crush their heart, that you'll break down the door, that you'll stir them up, that you'll baptize them with the Holy Spirit, enabling them to be born again, granting them repentance, to turn from their sin, to embrace your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to walk away and know, because your Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, that they have been born into the family, they are now of the household of faith. To grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. To love the word. To be conformed by the word. To be sanctified in the truth as your word says. Your word is truth. And I pray that your church would be blessed. And may we walk away this morning. Whether we're afflicted. Or encouraged. Rejoice because of the price that was paid. The lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for the church. Thank you for your glorious word. Bless your people today for their good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.